Welcome everyone back to a new podcast from us on uh, Gaelic Voices in North America. This is day six of Shachkin the Gaelic, World Gaelic Week. And my name is Liam Okasata, or Liam or Bill Cassidy. I'm here today for our sixth podcast episode with uh, Dr. Michael Newton of the Hidden Glen Folk School and Scott Modison, Scott McIlvoda, and Rick Gwynallen from Skullgaelic Valentaivor, the Baltimore, Maryland Gaelic School, one of the most active Gaelic learning communities on the east coast of the U.S. Welcome, everybody. Great to be with you here again today. Today, we're going to be doing something a bit different than we've done so far this week. You know, if you've listened to our podcasts, we have been talking about Gaelic voices in North America by region, looking at different regions where Highlanders and Islanders from Scotland settled and brought the Gaelic with language with them. Uh, we've included the east coast of the U.S., Nova Scotia and the Canadian Maritimes, Ontario and Quebec, uh, New York, the Midwest, the West Coast, many areas. And in this episode, rather than look at another region, what we want to do is look at some of the some of the myths, perhaps. The myth might not be the right word technically, but some of the ideas that have made it harder to hear. Uh, North America's Gaelic voices. And there are three major areas we'd simply like to have a discussion about. You know, one is why are there er why are there areas or regions in North America that once had Gaelic-speaking immigrant communities, but lack any surviving evidence of them? They're kind of like empty zones. What is the reason for that? Uh, the second topic or theme is how do modern misrepresentations about Scottish heritage silence the voices of Gaelic speakers and create confusion about the nature of Scottish identity and the Gaelic experience in North America? You know, a third area is how modern notions of race and racialized identities, how they might erase the existence of Gaelic speakers who had non-Scottish ancestry. In particular, you know, there are many people who have African and Native American ancestry whose ancestors spoke Scottish Gaelic as well. And they're an important part in the history of Gaelic speaking communities in North America. But, you know, modern views on identity often make these people invisible and write them out of the picture. So that's a lot to cover in about an hour. But I'm going to kick it off by throwing it over to uh, to uh, to Michael, to Michael Newton to discuss, you know, maybe we can start by talking about why are regions in North America that are empty of surviving, why are there regions of North America that are empty of surviving evidence, despite having had Gaelic speaking communities in the past? This is Michael Newt. Um, so yes, the, it's nowadays it's very common to hear people in the South 
um, kind of claiming this, this Celtic identity. You have, you know, very big Highland games and you have this notion that there are all of these Scots-Irish people that are Celtic. And therefore, you know, there's a, there's a myth even that's been created in the later part of the, uh, the 20th century that the South was really Celtic and it was set up against the Anglo-Saxon North and that that was the inevitable consequences. Uh, well, the inevitable consequences of that led to civil war. So you have a lot of myth-making um, that would have you believe that the Celts are somehow more associated with the South. So what's going on and why is it that when we look at the actual evidence that there's lots of Gallic material from the North and from the West and from other regions, and yet it's kind of a big blank slate to a large degree uh, in the South. Now, of course, as we've already discussed, the Cape Fear had a very large Gallic-speaking region, and we do have Gallic materials that survive from there. And we have at least one poem from a community in Tennessee that had moved from the Cape Fear. However, uh, even though we know that there were pockets of Gallic-speaking communities, very little survives to tell us what their thoughts and their feelings and their experiences were. So why was that? Well, certainly Gallic-speaking communities were the minority. They were surrounded by, you know, much larger communities who, you know, were a number of different languages. You certainly had Francophones in places, you had German speakers, uh, you had Spanish speakers, you had, and, and obviously, uh, First Nations, Native American communities that spoke a variety of different languages. But uh, those Gallic communities were very much dominated by Anglophones who had kind of default position of superiority in political, economic, and social terms. And so that made them very marginal in those ways. Uh, these communities also, in many parts of the South, were secondary or even tertiary migrations. So people tend, tended to go initially to the Cape Fear, and then after two or three or four generations, they would go from there to other places like Texas or Alabama or Tennessee. Um, but they'd already been so uh, already been influenced or exposed to generations of that kind of de facto Anglo-Saxon dominant status quo. So it was, they were kind of weakened by that, as it were. And given that racialized environment of the South, you tended to get a polarity of either white or non-white racially, but everybody defaulting to this kind of, um, you know, being, having to, to accommodate a very strong Anglophone, Anglocentric kind of point of view, especially linguistically. And this is quite different from the urban centers of the North. We had, you know, many more ethnic groups that survived in ethnic terms, their languages and their identities and parts of their customs. You know, it, there was more plurality in the North, whereas in this kind of rural South, highly racialized, you tended to get kind of this racialized pull, but uh, Anglo conformity in terms of language. And there's also a really common myth that Appalachia is somehow Celtic and there were Highlanders playing their bagpipes in Appalachia, but there's very, very little of that. So that's just kind of a backdrop about in terms of, you know, that, that evidence, why don't we have a lot of material? Um, and then we get to the point of talking about things like literacy and writing stuff down. Um, Liam, did you want to introduce a comment or thought there? Well, that was 
part of my my thought. You, mean, you mentioned literacy and writing stuff down. Uh, I think we have to ask how many of the the Gaelic speakers in these communities, whether they were in the South or the North or other parts of North America, how many of them were literate in Gaelic, especially in the earlier days, in the late 18th century? Uh, how many of them actually had Gaelic Bibles? To my knowledge, those weren't widely available until into the 19th century. So you have to wonder, you have a community where there's probably a lot of composition of songs and poems going on because that's what Gales did in their everyday lives. But that's all very ephemeral until it's written down. It only survives as long as it's remembered, you know, and it's only in places like Cape Breton where a lot of this was recorded and written down quite late in the 20th century that we're able to see just how much local community composition occurs and in Scotland, of course, as well. But when you see that in Cape Breton, you realize that this must have been true in the Cape Fear River Valley. It must have been true in the Argyle Colony in New York and many other places where you had a large scale Scottish Gaelic settlement. Uh, People would have composed songs. They would have told stories. Uh, But if it wasn't written down, once the language ceased to be spoken, it disappeared like smoke. And, and, and I think even where it was written down, the ability of records to survive over uh, a century or two centuries, it's very difficult. You think of how many records are just thrown out, how much paper is burnt up or disintegrates over time. And also, even where you had people who were literate and who could write in Gaelic, um, there would also have been people literate in English, especially in what became the United States, um, where you weren't as isolated, people weren't as isolated, I think, as they were in, in, say, in Cape Breton, where you didn't have as much of an influence until later on from, from English uh, on the local community. So you all probably all the official paperwork and documents would have been written down in English, of course, you know, leaving little room for people to be writing in Gaelic and it would have been personal and probably wouldn't have, may not have survived. There may be stuff out there yet still to be found. And I think that poem you mentioned, which I believe was the one that uh, Bill Caudill and Katrina Parsons worked on, discovered in in someone's papers, personal papers. uh, I mean, that there could be more of that out there, but it's probably very hard to find now and pretty rare. And I think that's, again, one reason why we have these these blank zones. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, if you don't have scholars who know the language looking through archives, then it's not going to be found. And uh, given that Gaelic has been pretty ignored by the academy in North America, and people aren't aware of what it is, they're not going to be seeing it or finding it, even if it's there. So that in itself is a problem. And and as you say, Gaelic did not have the advantage of being taught, you know, literacy and, and education. Gaelic was very much something that the official educational system tried to destroy, not to support. And it's really through the church that you have the development of literacy, uh, especially through the reading of the Bible, but the Bible wasn't printed until 1807 fully in Gallic. And so therefore you have a very late start in having these things 
um, accessible in terms of literacy to Gales. And if the language is under this huge amount of pressure, especially especially in smaller kind of island communities, islands of Gaelic, you know, around a bunch of Sea of English, then it's not going to have the chance to survive long enough for these powerful figures that you get in, in Nova Scotia, like Alexander McLean Sinclair and Jonathan McKinnon, who were such stalwarts of Gaelic and went around collecting things. So there, there's kind of a, a number of factors there. You know, a good example of this, a friend of mine who had researched his family history, his family had come into the Cape Fear River Valley region, all Gaelic speakers, went to Mississippi probably in the early 1800s when that territory was opened up for settlement by Europeans uh, or Americans at that time. And, you know, he claimed that the church that his ancestors helped found and the community they lived in was Gaelic speaking in Mississippi and that the services would have been conducted in Gaelic. Problem is, I doubt there's any surviving record of that. People may know that, oh yes, Gaelic was spoken here in this church and uh, the services were in Gaelic. But if you don't have any of the the notes, any of the, the business of the church being written down in Gaelic, uh, you know, that all disappears. Yeah, so there are certainly many records that mention, you know, that you have this community of Highlanders speaking, you know, this odd language or call them Scotch or whatever that are in these places. So we know that there are certain places where there were Gaelic speakers, but the records um, showing what they talked about and what they thought about, what they sang about, are just, they're just not there to any real degree. And especially when you compare to, to the North and even to the West, um, it's just much of a, of a blank slate, unfortunately. I don't know if Rick or Scott want to make any, insert any comments here. Well, uh, I would guess that the only way we could even hope to find any kind of remaining records in these regions would, would be for someone to actually put out a call to residents of these areas who actually have family ties going back to this time period and still contain some family records and then, you know, have a field worker go through their, uh, their possessions and see if anything turns up. But that would be like a door to door search for a needle in the haystack, so to speak. Although it, it hasn't been attempted to the best of my knowledge, either in academia or in the amateuristic, um, collection fields as, as far as I know anyway. Yeah, and it hasn't because there aren't scholars that are whose job it is to look at Scottish Gaelic in North America, when, which is, you know, a crime when you think about the number of people who came who are Gaelic speakers, the number of people who are important Americans who have, you know, Gaelic ancestry and how can we get any kind of support and consciousness about this being something worth looking at? Right. It's something that generally people just don't know about or that they just think isn't important or they're, you know, they're looking through the lens of modern white Anglo-Americans in the past at the past. And this just is not on the radar. I was just going to comment that in the course of like reading all this material during this the series that we've put together here, I've read a lot more material than I ever had read you know, before. And I, I just find it amazing that that much has survived in so many corners of, of North America. As, you know, as most immigrating families moved West, no matter what they were, Germans, Swedes, Norwegians, they were all losing their language. 
you know, rapidly. And for such a small group of people to have still produced so much literature, I mean, I find that amazing, you know, pretty much. I think the points that everybody has made here as to why it doesn't exist in other areas are all are all good. I would agree with them all. But still, I'm pleasantly amazed that so much does exist. Yeah, and one thing that is worth keeping in mind, too, that it that it's pretty consistent. I mean, these are the same people. They're all leaving Scotland, and maybe they stop someplace for a generation or two, and maybe then they move on. But, you know, what we see is a great deal of consistency in Gaelic values and, and in the Gaelic voice, which, you know, I think is really helpful in filling in these gaps because, you know, like the program that we did where Liam was talking about how people who left Nova Scotia after two or three or four generations, they were writing poetry of exile when they went to, say, California, that was echoing very, very strongly what their ancestors who had let, left Scotland were saying. So there is a consistency and, you know, a, a what you could have, what could, you could call it an identifiable uh, Gallic voice and mindset, which is reflected by the literature. And so, it's why the literature is so important. It's what the community values. It's their way of expressing who they are and what matters to them, which is why people who, you know, say that they support Scottish heritage, uh, why they should be paying attention to this. So we've talked about, you know, the empty zones, as we call them, uh, where we know Gaelic existed, but there's not so much surviving evidence. You know, one thing that I think this leads people to do is to you know, to, I think it leads them to, to build their own identities to an extent, to engage in exercises and identity building, which, frankly, we all do. But, you know, I think this is obvious in one area in particular, which is Scotch-Irish identity in North America. Now, millions of Americans claim Scotch-Irish identity or ancestry, uh, but what does the term actually mean? And I think that the term has meant different things at different times and to different people, uh, which might surprise some people today who think that it means, well, you know, our ancestors are Scotch-Irish Protestant from the north of Ireland originally, uh, but Celtic in some way, and, you know, really strong in Appalachia. And this is where I often hear Appalachia being given its 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 quote unquote Celtic identity is through Scotch Irish even more than through Highlanders or or uh, plain vanilla Irish. But uh, if we could talk a little bit about about that, I think it's a really interesting uh, point. You know, I've I've had this discussion with people who often seem to think Scotch Irish is like one thing. It's it's a it's a certain identity and and. Here are the elements of it, and it's always been this way. But, you know, I don't believe that's the case. If you go back far enough in history, Scots-Irish actually meant the, the Hebridians to the Elizabethans, and they were talking about the uh, mercenary warriors who were coming over from the Hebrides to aid the Irish in their wars against Elizabeth I. So, of course, that's got no connection to the group we know as Scots-Irish today, but it shows you how terms can change over time. And I think the term Scotch-Irish has uh, changed even more. Yeah, so one way of looking at this is to think about like how people assume uh, ethnic groups originate or what ethnic terms mean. 
And so one problem is that I think people think that there's some sort of genetic or DNA basis for ethnicity, whereas it's something that changes all the time. The words change and the group of people change and the labels get switched amongst groups. Um, terms like, you know, Canadian and American are examples of that because the people you call Canadian 300 years ago were the natives. And then it became used of the Quebecois people. And now it means, you know, largely uh, Anglophones living in a particular area of, of North America. So these terms change all the time. And DNA is not tells, does not tell you what your ethnic group is. Ethnic identity is something that uh, is very kind of broad and abstract that emerges from when a community says that they have some kind of identity. And that usually depends on a context. So people assume that like a country is an ethnic group, but the problem is many countries consist of several ethnic groups and they can even be split between countries. When you look at groups like the Kurds, well, the Kurds are split between three different countries and a country like Iraq has multiple ethnic groups in it. So similarly, uh, Scotland, we think of Scotland as a country and you might easily assume that it is a ethnic group, a singular ethnic group, but there are arguably three different major ethnic groups that have been there in the modern period. The Gales that predominate in the highlands, the people of the lowlands, and then the people of the Northern Isles. So, you know, in broad terms, these are three different ethnic groups that are all coexisting in modern Scotland, Scotland of the modern era. The term, uh, to make it more confusing, in North America, Generally, all of these groups tended to be uh, labeled as Scotch. And I did say Scotch because that was the dominant term until the late 19th century. And as far as I can tell, it's the influence of the temperance movement where people were saying drink is bad for you, um, that people started uh, losing favor for the term Scotch and replaced it with Scottish or Scots or what have you. But when you look at records about immigrants in uh, say, 18th and 19th century North America, you find the term Scotch used a lot of the places where Highlanders and others settled. You have Scotch Corner, Scotch Settlement, a Scotch, Scotch Town, all these kinds of terms being used uh, without differentiation between the different kinds of Scots that you have. So that, you know, again, shows you the sources of potential confusion and real confusion that persists to the present day. So we have to kind of keep in mind that these labels change over time um, and they get used by different people in different contexts in different ways. So I guess I'll throw in a couple of like personal things. I think myths are, you know, myths serve a purpose. You know, they, they come about and they serve some kind of a purpose until such time as they no longer serve a purpose, you know, and another narrative takes its place. So my, my, um, my grandmother is the one that made me think I was so Irish. She talked about Irish all the time. I knew uh, she was tall. She was redheaded. She had her genealogy down and we were definitively Irish. And as it turns out, a lot of her family was quite diverse. I mean, some lines of it came over and would have definitely called themselves Irish Presbyterians. Uh, and yet one of those was probably predated the plantations and had made their own decision as to what they would become and where they would go, you know, in order to leave it. But for my grandmother, she made no distinctions whatsoever. 
It was just Irish. And that was the label. That was the understanding of identity that she chose and that maybe her mother chose, you know, as well to kind of bring these these diverse strands of family together under some rubric. A lot of time passes. My brother in a conversation just all of a sudden says something about us being Scots-Irish. And I said, well, did you hear, did our grandmother say that? Did I miss that somewhere? Did we say that? And he said, well, no. I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, well, I don't really know. Maybe because we were, because grandma was Protestant. You know, and so I think I hear a lot of people pick up terms like Ulster Scots or Scots-Irish for different reasons. Some of them want to differentiate themselves from Catholic-Irish. Some of them want to build up their Scots bona fides. You know, it's just, it's all sorts of things that, that come together in the mind that create a, a myth. And I think part of what we do in kind of things like this is to start to unpack some of those myths, to give a the possibility, you know, of a different narrative that looks gives a little colder, more discerning eye on our own history. I think what you hit on there, Rick, with your grandmother was very interesting about her conception of being Irish. When the Presbyterians from the north of Ireland came over to America, to the colonies, and then the early United States in the 18th, early 19th century, they largely referred to themselves as Irish. Um, you find this in records of the time. I would refer and everyone listening to go and look for Peter Gilmore's work on this topic. Um, but you also see it in Ireland at the time too. It was Presbyterians from Ulster who founded the United Irishmen, which was the Republican organization that advocated for a secular Irish Republic along American and French lines in the late 18th century. We all know what happened there, but it was only over time as politics changed that the people who in the 18th century called themselves Irish began calling themselves Ulster Scots or British in what they call Northern Ireland and Scotch-Irish in North America, especially, well, predominantly in America. I, I think, you know, certainly Scotch-Irish, you cannot deny someone's identity. I think what all this conversation points to is the need for people to look more deeply at the meaning of that word and the broader, diverse elements of identity that exist within Scotch-Irish or Scots-Irish. Uh, it's not just one type of, of, of group. Uh, it's a collection of groups that, you know, together amalgamate to form what we today think of as Scotch-Irish. Uh, and that includes people who are, you know, have no connection to Gaelic Scotland or Lowland Scotland. There were, you know, Presbyterian Irish uh, from certainly the 17th century on, and uh, many of their ancestors, many of their people, many of those people went to North America and would have been considered later on Scotch-Irish simply because of religion, not because of ancestry. Um, I mean, you also had get Scottish Gaelic speakers who came into uh, Ireland and settled in Ulster and uh, who kept their own language going for a while. And, you know, when you look at the names of people there today and you look at various political parties, 
you'll see on both sides, you have some names that are obviously of Gaelic origin and some that are not. So the identity is very complex and identity is often an ever-changing thing. Each generation views it differently. So, you know, I think, yeah, there's certainly a need, you know, in this area that we're talking about for people to look uh, beyond, you know, the mainstream conception they've been given and ask, what does this really mean? You know, and a good example of how perceptions change is, you know, in the 19th century, when you said you were Scotch-Irish, uh, you were in many ways identifying yourself with lowland Scotland settlers in Ireland who had come to America, uh, not with anything Celtic. And this was very clear in the literature of the period. Um, they saw themselves as the term was the group was viewed as an offshoot of the quote unquote Anglo-American race to some extent, or at least an adjunct to it. And uh, not at all like, you know, those Celtic Irish or Celtic Highlanders. Um, those were the people that they did not want to be associated with. Today, however, quite the opposite is true. And Scotch Irish, when you talk with people about being Scotch Irish, they're very much proud of what they see as their Celtic inheritance. Um, that's become part of it today. So to some extent, it's what's popular in culture at the moment that influences how we view identity and what identities we see as being attractive. Uh, you know, and, and that definition that can change the definition of you know a term like that over time. So I just think it, you know, again, it, it to me it says this is something people need to really be more aware of and look more deeply into and examine how this, again, feeds back into Scottish Gaelic and also into Irish culture. Well, I was, I wanted to interject a little bit here because I've got um, some like personal experiences with this. And um, for me, growing up, the, the term Scotch Irish didn't mean an ethnic religious group. It meant like a migratory pattern. And my own family ancestry is an attestation to this in a little bit, uh, in a way anyway. Our, our common Morrison ancestor immigrated from what we believe to be the Isle of Lewis to what was then called Londonderry, which is today I believe is called Derry in Northern Ireland. And he left in the mid-1700s on a private sailing vessel according to the histories, so he was well-to-do. Um, but the, the family histories all stated it was because of religious reasons, because he was Presbyterian. And if he came from the, the farther end of Lewis or maybe North East, then he could have been a Presbyterian in a Catholic district, which would have caused him to, you know, which would have been the, the, the reason for him leaving. But he stayed in, he and his family stayed in, um, in Londonderry for a few years and then ultimately immigrated into Philadelphia. And then they matriculated down into Stanton, Virginia, and then Lexington, Virginia, where it, which is like sort of like the, the center of my, um, the, the regional center of my my the Scottish side of my family and my father's side. Um, so for me, it, it didn't, you know, growing up and hearing these kind of little stories, it, it didn't mean that it was Presbyterian versus Catholic or anything like that. It just meant they started in Scotland, they went to Ireland, and they came to America. So it was it was a migratory pattern as opposed to a, an, an ethnic identity. Now, whether or not my elders saw it in a different light, I don't know, because I'm also half Italian. So growing up, I always like had these inner conflicts within me because I've got this 
dark 100% Italian mom and this white or sunburnt red <laughs> Scotch, Scotch Irish, quote unquote, father, right? And I, I saw the two as like a conflicting kind of thing um, when I was, when I was uh, being raised. And I even saw them as different races in a way. And their, their own personal marriage, my father and my mother, they had racial conflicts because they decided to get married. Because my dad was Presbyterian, my mom was Catholic, he's white Southern, my mom is Northern Italian. And it was a mess, <laughs> quite quite a bit, because of the way that they identified. Um, so, having that ra- those racial I wouldn't call them overtones, but like those those racial um, noises in the background when growing up in the '70s and the '80s with this sort of thing, I saw it as as like a bi uh, a bicameral kind of thing. You know, am I Italian or am I Scottish? And it isn't until just recently where I, I finally realized that, that that doesn't really matter from an ethnicity point of view or from a from a genetic point of view you know i have cultural connections to both and trying to like communicate that to other people who 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 may identify as scotch irish in that there is multiple ethnicities in scotland is is a challenge for sure in in today's culture and one one path of entry which was the path of entry into all of these scottish studies that i've since undertaken was uh, my my Scotch Irish identity and my my extreme interest in the kilt, <laughs> right? Because I was a, I grew up as a geek in the a Dungeons and Dragons nerd, and I ran around you know putting armor on as a high schooler, as elementary schooler, and donning a kilt and being a savage Highlander was very appealing to me from just that 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 uh that particular point of view. But then I went to a Highland Games in in um. Uh, Arund- Anne Arundel County and met some people at the Clan Morrison tent and they introduced me to the idea of Scottishness and from there it just took off um, and I've since uncovered all the other things that come along with that but it is interesting how um, these iconic symbols the kilts, the the Scottish games and and all the other things are, are so strongly associated with Scotland that they can at the same time bury the Gaelic voice but also, on the other end, they can bring someone like me into the fold, and th- and they are an entryway or a doorway into a much wider world if one is interested in looking hard enough. And that's a great example, Scott, of you know how you know you can have, say, a gateway by being interested in certain aspects of identity or culture, and then find out there's much more available to you. But you know, I think. You know, we ask why does why do symbols uh, in North America? Why do these symbols of Scottish identity, you know, have so much power compared to, you know, and silence silence the voice, the Gaelic voice to a, to a degree? Well, I think you know, obviously, when you lose the language and culture, the symbol is what is accessible. It's what remains to many people, and it's what's accessible. Um, and, you know, what's unfortunate is that it's, it's difficult for many people to go beyond that symbol and do the deeper digging, such as what you're discussing, you know, uh, actually learning a much more developing from your interest in what is a symbol to a degree, the substance of the culture. The emotional connection there is really strong too, because, like I, I can remember seeing Highlander the movie, 
right? When I was like 16 and seeing these beautiful vistas of the highlands and whatnot. And, and then you got these, these people running around in kilts and swords and screaming at each other and not a, not nary a word of, of Gaelic has dropped in the entire movie. But at the same time, I, I felt some sort of strange connection to it because I knew I was Scottish in my ancestry somewhere or another. So it, it, it can, they can be very powerful symbols indeed. I'll try to throw a couple of comments in on kind of all of it. The first thing I was going to say is, Scott, I had a a, a similar res- reaction in my own family, but handled it very differently. The differences in my family always seemed natural to me. Like uh, I remember when I was in fourth grade in Japan, my a friend of mine asked, and I don't know why army army kids talk about like where your family came from and stuff like that. I guess it's because we don't belong anywhere. It's because we travel around so much. He said, where's your family? Who is your family? Where's your family from? Something like that. And I still remember answering without a slight, without even any pause, to say, oh, we're we're Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and North Carolinian. And it all made sense to me. Somehow or another, in the way my family told their stories, because I didn't, they didn't, um, I certainly didn't speak Gaelic. They certainly didn't speak any of that. But they filled my life with stories about all these things. And it all made sense to me. And my friend's uh, past made sense to him in some way. And that may have been reinforced because as you travel a lot, families just do that. It wasn't ever in conflict or anything to me. Um, I was going to say that I, ident- I, what Liam brought up originally, I think, identity is a, like a very complex matter. And like you said, each of our, indiv- our identities are evolving from the time we leave school essentially we're constantly building the concept of who we are even more complex is communal identity and one of the and michael was making the point that people get confused a lot of times with dna with a lot of dna research into their ancestry and one of the statements that has always stayed with me the most was a statement that kim tallbear who is a a uh, professor in the University of Alberta, and she deals with DNA stuff. And she was asked, talk to people were talking to her in an interview once about the number of of people who have discovered Native American ancestry. And she said, well, you know, you have to differentiate. DNA is one thing. Ethnicity and identity. It matters less who you say you are, or what you claim to be, than who claims you. You know, uh, identity has a lot to do with the communal setting in which you are, you live. And as that communal setting kind of evolves, your identity evolves and communal identity evolves. My own path into being involved with Scottish stuff was actually much rougher than any of you guys are probably describing and much more disappointing, actually. And a lot of it had to do with identity stuff. I don't know if that story really fits what we're doing right now, but if it does, I'll tell it later. But I found um, identity questions to be somewhat more confusing as I came in, you know, to Scottish stuff. And I think as I, I ended up going to a lot of Highland games, because out in the Pacific Northwest, there are a lot of them. And wanted my daughter kind of to go things and be involved in stuff. As a matter of fact, the reason I even started wearing a kilt was that she was walking across a field one day when she was eight or nine at one of these games and said daddy why don't you just buy a kilt and wear it so you look like other men 
you know, any child that is embarrassed because her father does not wear a skirt, you know, must have some association, you know, with all of this. But I think that um, people need, like the symbols become important because they're putting together a sense of identity that's disconnected, you know, from the living reality of the people that they were, that they came from. And not many people in high school or college or any place else are connecting the dots for them, you know, to take them back into a deeper look at that. What we, the narratives that we have today, in many respects, were not given to us, you know, by the people who we have been reading all this time. They've been reinterpreted, you know, by uh, British imperial forces, by capitalism, by um, the desire for for Anglo America to move west. It's been, it's made them um, accessible and safe, and we've been handed those narratives. It takes a lot of unpacking of that. And it, unfortunately, it's a topic I could go on and on about, but since I see hands being raised, I'm not going to. Maybe I'll get back to it. Yeah, I just wanted to mention really quickly that, you know, again, looking at the ways in which ethnic labels and understanding of identity have changed in North America, certainly religion was a really major way in which people both formed identity or identified groups and exercised power. And you have to remember that that the whole British imperial project was highly anti-Catholic. It was a major disadvantage to be Catholic in the 18th, 19th, early, even the early 20th century. And so when you get all of these uh, immigrant Irish Gales, Catholics, flooding into North America in the 1840s because of the failure of the potato crop, huge famine in Ireland, something like, was it 100, uh, sorry, one and a half million Irish people coming into North America, seeking desperately a place and a way to survive, who spoke, oftentimes only spoke Irish. They didn't speak much English. And when they did, it was in a thick accent and they were Catholic. So you have, you know, a major kind of, um, you know, social change happening where you have a lot of resistance to these foreigners coming with their strange names and their strange language and their strange culture and their unwelcome religion. And so that is the very time when the term Scotch-Irish gets invented. So these people who were Presbyterian, who had come from the north of Ireland several generations, at least a century earlier, who had been you know pretty thoroughly Americanized at this point, they can say, yeah, we came from Ireland, but we're not that bunch. We're not Catholic, we're, we're Presbyterian, or we're, you know, we're Protestant, something like Presbyterian, like Baptist or whatever. And the closest ethnic way to say that was Scottish, because there was a perceived connection between the Protestant church and Scotland. And so that's why you get this Scotch-Irish thing emerging at that time as a way of kind of conceptualizing a way of explaining difference from Catholic versus other ethnic religious groups in Ireland. But then people get confused about what does Scottish mean? Because you have Highlandism having been invented in the early 19th century, where in order to create a distinctive identity for all of Scotland that would be different from the English, they co-opted symbols and clothing and images from the Highlands. And that became a kind of artificial package of ethnic identity that asserted difference, even though... Uh, many of the people who came to, you know, 
play the pipes or go to Highland Games or, or will or wear tartan did not have a Gallic origin. So again, you have a constant and major series of shifts going on around ethnic identity and ethnic terms between the late 18th and early 20th century. And that kind of culminates finally with the presidency of John F. Kennedy of Irish people being safely white. And then after that is when you get people who were Scotch-Irish who previously said, oh, no, we're not Celtic, we're not Gaelic, nothing to do with those folks. Then it becomes safe. It becomes acceptable. That, that shows, again, how the, the, the racial lens kind of like shifts around and, and just is more proof that race is a social construct and not a genetic construct, um, because the same thing happened to the Italians. They were looked down upon as another group and for the same religious reasons and for the same cultural reasons, reasons and thick accents. And that was only recently they became white, quote unquote. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's always a shifting dynamic over here in that regard. This comes back around and to an extent to the to the idea of symbols. And, you know, Michael, you're mentioning the introduction of Highlandism or the creation of it, uh, the use of the kilt, the bagpipe, all these symbols that evolved, that came out of Gaelic culture, that came out of the culture of the Highlanders, uh, but were then adopted and used as a package, in a sense, to represent Scottishness, even to people, even for people who weren't from that Gaelic culture. And I think that is really interesting in the North American context as well, because obviously at the same time, this is being done in Scotland and throughout the British empire, it's being done by Scottish organizations in the United States and Canada, Canada, of course, being part of the British empire. Uh, you know, we see, you know, right through today, as, as you mentioned, Rick, you know, your daughter is saying, why don't you wear a kilt like all the other men, dad? Uh, you know, this symbols becoming so important and they've they've outlived that initial function that they that they performed in the 19th and early 20th centuries, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, they're still with us today. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does often inhibit people from going deeper into the background of why these things are important, what they actually meant historically. and then uncovering the Gaelic voices, which, as you said, Rick, they've been directed away from to an extent. And the, uh, you know, one thing that strikes me is, you know, the idea of the clan and how important the clan often is to North Americans uh, of Scottish ancestry. I think many listeners in Scotland, you know, and having talked with people in Scotland about this, they can often be puzzled by the American fascination with what clan do you belong to? Because they don't necessarily see themselves as belonging to any clan today. Um, but, you know, certainly, you know, again, because the language and culture had been stripped away, many Americans, many Canadians, for them, what they have left are these symbols, you know, the kilt, the bagpipe, uh, you know, the military tradition, I should insert there too, but also uh, the idea of the clan. Now, this obviously was important to their ancestors. I mean, uh, and we, we, we heard one of the poems we read earlier, I think on the second day of our series, was from Anna Nicolisa from, from Moidart uh, in, in Scotland. And when she moved to Quebec, she wrote this long poem where she talked about 
Clan Donald. And this was in the 1780s. So it was after, long after the time that Clan Donald was a functioning uh, clan in the medieval sense. But you know, the memory of it was still there and was still very important to her. This has kind of been translated down uh, to modern times. But I think there are things that people often overlook or misconceptions that we could call myths that come up. You know, one is that the clans existed all over Scotland. And, you know, you will go to Highland Games in America where you you will hear of clans that, you know, were, were certainly not from the Gaelic speaking area where clans were, you know, in existence. They were the means of, of government, uh, the social organizing structure. Uh, there were other family and kin-based organizations elsewhere. I won't argue that point, but the term clan has been applied to all of Scotland, you know, probably most of the benefit of the sellers of maps of Scottish clans. Uh, but, uh, you know, beyond that, there's also a sense that all oh, the clans are all the same, that clan means one thing, and that it has always meant one thing through history. It's this ancient Celtic, you know, form of social organization. You know, when actually it means something different in different periods of history, it means something different in terms of how it was organized, even in different parts of Gaelic Scotland, let alone Gaelic Ireland, you know, where people often say, well, what, you're a clan, what's your Irish, what's your clan? There were no clans in Ireland as there were in Scotland, though there was a similar kind of organization. So, you know, I think that there, you know, these kinds of things give people this very, it's a very broad, broad stroke view of what clan is and means in history. And there are lots of people who, who know a lot, much more than me, about clan history in Scotland, here in North America. Uh, you know, there's a lot of clan societies now, well, at least some of them are very active in promoting Gaelic within their membership. Uh, best example is the uh, learned kindred of Curry, which are not a clan, as they will tell you, but a learned kindred. Uh, so what needs to be done there? What's the, what's the problem? I think the problem is that people don't get the opportunity to go beyond the assumption that, oh, my name is McDonald, so I belong to Clan Donald. You know, what part of Clan Donald? Can you, give, you know, they often don't know their ancestry well enough to say that their ancestor came from South South East or, you know, from Isla, uh, you know, I think those things tend to lead to, they tend to lead to, uh, you know, again, misconceptions or, you know, simply a lack of knowledge about how these things actually work, what the role they played was. So I think what's really, what's needed desperately, and it's a hard thing for people to find, is some ability to to go back and get a better grounding in the actual history, in the Gaelic language histories of clans, in what Shanachis, you know, said about clan history, and get an immersion in that. I mean, that I think would be extremely important in kind of helping them recover the Gaelic voice in North America. Liam, well said. And this is where we kind of dip into the area of cultural appropriation a bit, because the vast majority of Americans are really not that interested 
in their clan histories, right? They like the idea of being part of a clan and getting to wear a tartan. And then it just sits on the surface and that's it. And I guess the, the bigger question for that is how inappropriate an idea is that? Is it okay to identify with Clan Donald. I've got neighbors across the street who are McDonald's and he has a giant Clan Donald tattoo right square in the center of his back that he showed me. And when I told him I was Gaelic speaker, he said, oh, that's cool. And that's as far as it went, <laughs> right? And he's, so uh, beyond his tattoo, I don't even know if he owns a kilt, but beyond his tattoo and his knowledge of this identification with this powerful um, symbol, I don't think he's really all that interested because he's American, you know, we're not, we're, and ultimately we are, we're all Americans. We're not Scots. That's, and that's a whole nother thing, right? When somebody said, Oh, are you Scottish? Well, I mean, no, cause I wasn't born in Scotland. I'm American, but I have, I have now come to say, no, I'm, I have Scottish ancestry or yes, I have Scottish ancestry instead of calling myself Scottish because the Scots that actually do come over here get really confused <laughs> when they listen to us talk like this. So I, I don't, I mean, at the, like we said, with the, the door swings both ways, you know, these, these symbols are very useful in drawing more people to realize that Scottish culture is important and that it has been somewhat down, not somewhat, but it has been very downplayed and has definitely been broad stroked. Um, but at the same time, if we allow people to, do we allow people to run around in kilts and do this? Or how do we reach these people to, to get more of a, a better, uh, a more articulate view of, of the definitions of Scottishness? Well, I don't think we have the right to tell anybody what to wear or not to wear, you know, or, or how to identify themselves or not identify themselves. And, you know, again, I don't want to imply that I see any harm in, in people being interested in the clans and in what clan their ancestors might have belonged to. Uh, you know, what I do wish we would see more of is deeper exploration of that identity and culturally what that means. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, your neighbor, again, he understands that there was a clan Donald, that they were a powerful uh, military organization within the Isles. Um, but they did a lot of other things too. They were major uh, promoters and benefactors of Gaelic culture, Gaelic artists and, 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 and learning. What does that mean? What does Gaelic learning and culture mean? That's where people don't go far enough. And part of this is the fault uh, the fault lies in our way of looking at culture in North America. It's we, we don't look at culture as being based within language or rooted within language. We look at it as being rooted within what you wear, what you eat, you know, what kind of television programs you like, uh, pretty much anything but language because we become very monolingual. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, there is, I, you know, I think what I would really love to see would be more people willing to go further into their, their identity of a clan and, and really, again, looking more closely at what clans mean and, and what role they played in society. Uh, but again, I think that also goes right back to what Michael has been mentioning, the lack of an academy that studies this and that promotes this. And that makes this knowledge available to people. I mean, as we know, it's not something that is, you know, on the normal curriculum in most 
colleges and universities, and even those with Celtic study programs, for that matter. So it's that is where there's, you know, certainly a lack of information that people need, you know, and and kudos to those societies that do, you know, outside of language-oriented groups like ours, those societies that do promote the Gaelic language and culture and show that it's a important part of Highland identity, Scottish identity, and to an extent, North American identity. And just just to pick up on that a little bit, to me, part of the problem is that it's the wrong focus. People assume that, again, clans are these eternal, unchanging things that you're always a member of, but they were just like corporations. You know, you have a head of the corporation and everybody else is going to go back and forth to, to different terms of employment or kinds of employment or businesses according to what their opportunities are. And the only people whose surnames were unchanging were, were the very few leaders. Most people were, were going back and forth between different clans, but what they had in common is they were all gales. It's like if you, if you move to Japan and in two generations, your children uh, ask each other, well, you know, are you Walmarters or Amazonians or, you know, Kmarters? I mean, who cares? They're all American. So in the same way, they're all gales. Their surnames mean nothing. It does not indicate what clan you were in. They were assigned arbitrarily at different times to different people. They were all Gales. And the important thing was that they were able to, and their, their poets were, were especially in the 17th and 18th century saying, we have to come together as Gales because we're under siege by these Anglophone people who threaten our language and our way of life. So they were constantly reminded that what they had in common was a common identity as Gales, a common language, a common culture, value system, way of life. And that's what mattered. Nobody said, you know, uh, what's important is you're a Campbell or a Fraser or, you know, a Mackenzie. They didn't care. It's we're the person who's reading that that into it because we want to wear a certain tartan or we want to think that, you know, our family surname tells us something and it doesn't. Surnames were assigned from the 17th century onwards very arbitrarily. So it, the focus is wrong. If people care about their heritage, you're going to find out who they're, you know, what, what culture they belong to, not what their, you know, umbrella of power was, which was changing all the time. It's, it's, it's meaningless. I think another thing we have to to look at right along those lines, Michael, is you know the the negative value placed on Gaelic by the American establishment, the British establishment, the Canadian establishment, um, and the impact that had on people. Why you know not only did it silence voices in the sense that people weren't being taught their own native language, uh, but it also convinced many people that the language did not have value, the identity did not have value, and therefore they should not use it. And this is one reason why we have these blank zones that we talked about earlier, where there's no surviving tradition, because that tradition was not just driven underground, it was driven out. And not by outsiders, but by the people whose families had the language themselves. And, you know, I think that you know, many of us could could find examples in our own background and in our own knowledge of people who said, why would you want to learn that? They never had any literature. They were savages or they were just tribes until somebody else came and 
improve them. And you can apply that same line to so many different groups, but it certainly resonates, I think, for the, the Highlanders, Islanders, and also, of course, the Irish. Um, you know, so just to mention that, I think that that has been a real, real muffle on the voice of the Gale. You know, I think that there's, it strikes me like there's an additional thing that you're struggling against, uh, that when we come up against, you know, Tartanism or Highlandism or things like that, at least in North America, you know, and this is a personal reflection. So anyone here who wishes to contradict this is more than welcome to. But I guess and when I first started to get introduced, you know, to Scottish organizations, clan organizations and such like that, and I think, Liam, you and I had this conversation a long time ago, I was left with the impression that there was not really a lot of attachment to Scotland itself or or the, much less the Geltalk. There was a sense that they were Scottish Americans, that they had they go to Scotland, they visit Scotland, very interested in Scottish archaeology, music coming out of Scotland, but not necessarily an attachment to the way that people are living in Scotland or in the Geltalk today. They're Scottish Americans. You know, they left that, and some uh, and they some of what they are interested in as they get into this is is a co- sort of cultural identity that is very much tied to the United States and to um, an Anglo society that they have become a very contributing part of, and take pride in that. That's that's how it hit me you know, as I was interacting with a lot of different places. And the clans become, the clan societies become a place for people to come together, you know, to do it, and you know, to, to, to be able to implement that. Now, that said, I was very surprised, and pleasantly so. When we started the Face in Our History program, I first wondered, should I even put this on these different clan societies things and and let the criticism come that quickly or should we wait and let the criticism come later you know you know for it but i did put it up and i still put them up because every time we get a lot of likes not necessarily from officers of those societies or anything like that but it's it tells me that despite the the symbolism of kilts and and that kind of stuff there is a hunger for something that is deeper to that maybe it's the language maybe it's a a a clearer understanding of the heritage itself but something keeps those likes coming and keeps people listening i think that the upper echelons of a lot of these groups are gatekeepers who want to maintain control over this very tightly controlled and orchestrated set of symbols that kind of enhance their sense of status and semi-exoticness. And they don't want that question, but you have kind of a lot of people below that level who want something deeper, who want something more, you know, substantive and that's more deeply rooted and they're not seeing it because usually these things are controlled by by this group who really just want a version of Americanness. To speak to what you're what you mentioned, you know they want to see certain aspects that reflect their own American identity or American values that they can claim or project to Scotland. But but anything that's like non-Anglo and non-white and too exotic gets just shunted aside and devalued immediately. 
I think it's also the case, you know, many of the people that we apparently are talking about, Americans of Scottish descent, their ancestors came here 150, 200, 250 years ago. There's been a, a lot of time and a lot of generations within North America, within North American English-speaking culture. Uh, as we all know, you don't learn a lot about Scotland in American elementary or secondary schools, let alone necessarily post-secondary education. You don't see outside of the images of Highlandism, the kilts, and all the rest, you don't see on, on television a great deal that reflects contemporary Scotland, which is why I know some people who, when they go to Scotland for the first time from North America, find it, you know, they're, they're quite surprised at what they find. And the Scots are quite surprised too. That distance, I think, has created a barrier that tends to smother that, those older Gaelic voices that we've been talking about in this entire week and uh, makes it more difficult. It's not necessarily that I think people don't only hear what they want to hear or only see what they want to see. I think they also don't know what to look for because no one's shown them what to look for before or told them you can find this here. And when they do find it, it's often, you know, it's an epiphany moment and it could be an eye-opening moment for many people. and hopefully it, you know, again, broadens their view and perspective, which is one reason why we learn languages in the first place. Well, I found more interesting than the attachment to clans for <clears throat> North Americans, particularly United States people, as I was going to festivals and such, was the, 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 the interest in, in chiefs, you know, particularly chiefs for clans that hadn't had them for a long time and sort of the the attachment to the idea you know of a chief because it strike it just strikes me like as i read all the material here a lot of the people coming to north america felt abandoned by their chiefs or by by nobles and so forth like that you read it in the poems you know they weren't coming here they were coming here to create new forms of organization to some extent maybe some of those still had the you know the clan social associated with it but um a lot of them seem to be coming here to escape some of that. Well, folks, I, I think that community is something people seek. And, you know, in an age where, in the age of Twitter, the internet, where localisms and regionalisms have been obliterated over the past generation or two, uh, community is is something a lot of people don't really feel out there. Um, this is true, not just in North America, but all over the, you know, certainly it's true in Scotland and other places as well. So I think that when you have people learning a language like Scottish Gaelic, I mean, they're not doing it because they need it for a, a job in North America unless hopefully they're going to go teach in Cape Breton. They, you know, are doing it for personal reasons, whether they're attracted to the music, which I think is a major gateway, uh, whether they're attracted to poetry and literature, uh, whether they're attracted to their own personal ancestry. uh, And again, they're interested in, you know, were their ancestors part of 
Clan Donald, or did they have ancestors in another clan? Um, what that might mean to them. So I think there are a lot of reasons people get involved in this, but I think seeking community is one very important reason. And if I could swing us back around and reconnect us with the initial theme of the, the session today, which was looking at conceptions and uh, misconceptions and myths that might be silencing or uh, muffling Gaelic voices. I mean, there are ways we can encourage that Gaelic voice to be heard. And the organizations we represent at one level or another are all trying to do that. So when we come back tomorrow for our last podcast, that's going to be our topic, I believe. What, what is being done today? What can be done today uh, to you know, not only uh, unchain some of those Gaelic voices, help people hear them, but uh, promote and encourage them, you know, both those in the past and those in the present. And in terms of community too, um, and ethnicity that we've been discussing, these things are complex and multi-layered and, and they always have been. And I think that one thing that really fascinates people and surprises them is to find out that there have been Gallic speakers in North America, you know, not only for a long time, but of many different origins. And this is true in Scotland as well. Um, that you had, for example, um, and we talked about fur traders a little bit and how the fact that Gales were already multilingual and used to accommodating different cultural and ethnic milieu, they were able to pick up native languages amongst First Nations in North America. They often had children with First Nations women and their children were multilingual and multi-ethnic. And there's a great many interesting and sometimes amusing anecdotes about their children. So you have that First Nations connection, and then you also have people of African ancestry that become Gallic speakers uh, for a variety of reasons. Slavery was certainly a major gateway or reason, uh, but there were other reasons and ways as well in which people of African ancestry became Gallic speakers. And so again, I think it's really important that we kind of open up our, our lenses and our windows into this world, which is very complex and it has very little to do with these kind of you know, stereoty stereotypes about clans and tartans and Highland games. It's, it's, it's a living language and a living community in all of the complexity and, you know, nuance that entails. I was just going to say, I think when we speak of black people or indigenous people who spoke Gaelic, we come on examples of just how complex and multi-layered issues of race and equality and marginalization are, you know, in the United States. It's a topic we may not have enough time for you know, to delve into, but I think it's, you know, it's an interesting, it's a subject that bears a lot more attention. And however those relationships came about, there are people of color who have a claim on, you know, the Gaelic language and the Gaelic story in, in the United States. Yeah, and I think that's really definitely worth emphasizing. And I can give a very brief anecdote of that nature from Nova Scotia. So when I was investigating this kind of issue, these kinds of issues in Nova Scotia, a friend of mine said, oh, you should go talk to Peter Maxwell. And Peter Maxwell was, well, I believe he's still alive. He's quite elderly. And he was either the grandson or great-grandson of, uh, of a young man who was found on the Halifax Pier and brought by a captain back to, to, to Cape Breton. 
to a community that was entirely Gaelic speaking. So, of course, this little boy grew up to be a man who was a native Gaelic speaker, essentially. Uh, and he had two uh, sons, twins, who were native Gaelic speakers, having been brought up in that community. And they had children. But those two sons were, were quite uh, famous because, well, number one, they looked very African because they were African. Uh, and they were fluent Gaelic speakers. They were musicians. They were singers. And so they were kind of leaders in, in their community. Now, Peter himself, as I said, was fairly old when I went to, to visit him uh, just outside of Halifax. And when I came into his home, he greeted me in Gaelic. He had a stack of Gaelic books. And then he sort of apologized that his Gaelic wasn't better because his family had moved to Truro when he was young. And so, therefore, they kind of lost that immediate connection with the Gaelic community. But he he conveyed the sense that he was a Gale. That was his identity. He didn't have a sense of being a racialized person. His, his ethno-linguistic identity as a Gale was meaningful to him and his primary association with how he thought about himself. And then he told me that he had, you know, unlike his branch of the family, he had cousins that had stayed in Cape Breton and were still, you know, native fluent Gaelic speakers. So he was a bit apologetic about that, that his that he didn't have, you know, better Gaelic to talk to me in Gaelic, but that's certainly how he saw himself. Um, and it's interesting when we look at places like North Carolina, for example, that there were people who were Gaelic speakers. Now, this is mostly because of slavery, because of slaves being uh, owned and kind of kept within a Gaelic speaking environment. And when emancipation happened, those people needed a church minister who was a Gaelic speaker. And so they set up a special church for emancipated African-Americans who were Gaelic speaking so that they could have this minister, you know, speak to them and administer them in the language which they spoke. Now, of course, for most of the emancipated slaves, they were mostly Anglophones. Some had other languages like German and so on. Uh, but of course, you know, we had Gales, Gaelic speaking folks uh, who had African ancestry. And there's interesting anecdotes about that community as well. Uh, one of which I picked up from people who had moved from the Cape Fear to Canada and had written about the community that they had left. And in one of these anecdotes, um, there was a, there was a, an enslaved person whose name was Tom and Tom was supposed to be assigned to a particular barge that went up and down the Cape Fear river. Uh, and that, <clears throat> that barge that he was assigned to was manned by other enslaved people, but he preferred to go on the barge where there are Gallic speakers, because even though these were a different group of people, they weren't enslaved people, Gallic was the language that they use in the barge, and he felt like those were the people he belonged with. And when his barge came in, he would call in sick, and then he would pop up and show up when the other barge came on uh, came on duty. And apparently when the barge would go around a certain bend in the river, he would, he would pop up and start singing and dancing in Gaelic. And the song that he would sing is one uh, that you will probably recognize, uh, but it had a particular variance of words that I think are quite interesting. Sound and ball and a beer, rugged me, so hooked me. Sound and ball and a beer, me, hurry But rather than sound and yeela, 
It is an Isla that I was born and raised. He's naming a particular village in Isla that only those people from Isla who are on the barge would know about, which means that he's kind of declaring as very traditional in, in Gallic tradition, a very specific and local association that he's asserting as part of his identity that those people will understand. So this is just one little snippet from the area here in North Carolina that shows us, and I have many others, that these folks of African ancestry were accommodated into the community because of their knowledge of the language, of the song, of the musical tradition, which were so key to Gallic, you know, culture. Well, we have a bit of a revival of that going on right now with artists like Rhiannon Giddens and the the band that she formed about a dozen years ago or so called the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and they specialized in performing um, local <clears throat> tunes that were from North Carolina, most of which had a Scottish origin. And she obviously is also a, um, a well-known Gaelic singer as well. And she has mixed, I think, uh, African and, and European ancestry. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that most of the tunes have a Scottish origin there certainly are some that have a connection but sometimes these can be you know scottish variants of things that were really performed or or created in a kind of a trans-european context well regardless she certainly identifies with that particular culture i think it's fascinating that today interest in scottish gaelic interest in celtic languages in general is not just relegated or confined to people who have ancestry necessarily from Scotland or Ireland or Wales or other places. It is, they do draw international interest and attention and people of all different shapes, sizes, colors, genders are drawn to, to Scottish Gaelic today. Uh, and, you know, certainly I think many of us have met people of African-American descent who are learning Gaelic or who are learning Irish. Uh, there are people, of course, within Scotland, people of color who have learned Gaelic and in Ireland who have learned Irish. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder that language, again, language and culture are something that don't necessarily travel down family trees alone. They are independent of what we might consider ethnicity to an extent and draw people from all over the world. And, and, and Scottish Gaelic has been fortunate in doing so. I will say the first teacher that I had for Scottish Gaelic, who was also one of my first Irish teachers, was a Franco-Russian American who's, uh, who spoke about 60 languages so, uh, you know, he had uh, just been drawn to the Celtic languages, first through Breton, but then went on to spend time in Wales and Ireland and, uh, you know, learned all of the Celtic languages. And uh, that's a great example of how strong a draw these languages have to people and how language you know, is something that is universal and is open and available to all. Well, with that, I want to thank everyone, uh, Michael Newton, Scott Morrison, Rick Gwynallen, for being here today with me, Liam Okasata, Bill Cassidy. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again, or at least 
for you to be listening to us again tomorrow for the last podcast in our Shachkin Nagalic series, uh, the last podcast in our World Gaelic Week series. For tonight, uh, this is Liam saying, Bianaklev, Agus Himi Shiv Amado. Oh, hechi dov America, manchele get a storas, on verdi get a fed and on, snuffering yapi yo.